people today find the word God difficult to accept, but practically everybody wants to be authentic, to find their reality, their truth. And I think for many people, that is the attraction of Hinduism today and also Buddhism, it calls you to discover yourself. And this path of self-discovery is, I think, the path of modern man. Perhaps the greatest exponent is Ramana Maharshi. Many of you will know him, the great sage, Arunachala Tiruvannamalai, about 100 miles from our ashram. He died in 1950, but his influence continues, continually goes on all the time, all over the world. And his method of meditation was to ask, who am I? And many people find that is the most revealing thing. Who am I? Am I this body? Am I this soul? Am I this personality, this thing sitting here talking? Or is there something in me beyond my body, beyond my soul, to discover the art and the spirit within? So that is the orientation of Hindu tradition. Hinduism leads us through the discovery of Brahman, the reality behind the universe, the discovery of the self, the God within. And now we come to the practical aspect. The Upanishads give us the doctrine, but yoga gives us the practice. I won't go into it now, but just to indicate, you have your doctrine in the Upanishads, also in what's called the Sankhya, one of the darshanas of systems of philosophy, and you have your practical discipline in the yoga. And if we want to discover the self, the only way almost, I could say, is through meditation. And yoga is a method of meditation. As you know, it has eight limbs, astanga, and it begins, and this is very important, with the moral doctrine, five commandments, not to kill, not to steal, to keep truth, keep chastity, not to covet. Those are the basic things. And then the niyamas, as they're called, further refinements of that. You lay your moral basis. Then you have your physical base, and the asana, the position, the pranayama, the breathing. And then you go on to the four stages of meditation, pratyahara, withdrawing from the object of sense, recollection, discovering the inner self. Then dharana, the concentration, focusing on one point, becoming ekagraha, one-pointed. And then dhyana, meditation proper, is continuing the mind like a flow of oil, they say, continuing in that oneness, focused on the one reality. And finally, samadhi, when you're absorbed into the reality which you contemplate, you enter into the union with God. So those are the stages of yoga. And they remain the most practical method. There are many systems of yoga, obviously, and many new developments like transcendental meditation and so on, but they're all variations, really, on the basic yoga. And so I think we all need to discover, first of all, the Hindu experience of God in the Upanishad, the experience of the self, and then to find the method of self-realization and meditation of some sort is the golden way towards that realization of the self. So yoga will be a method to reach that point. I'd like to read you just two extracts about yoga because they show its origins of the Upanishads. The yoga system of Patanjali with the eight limbs derives from about the 4th century AD. But that is simply the time when the formulation was made of a doctrine and a practice 
which went back hundreds, perhaps over a thousand years. And we get in the Kato Upanishad a very interesting insight into this yoga, where it says, when the five senses and the mind are still and reason itself rests in silence, then begins the path supreme. See, when the five senses and the mind are still. See, when we meditate in our Christian tradition, we often use the senses, and we always use the mind. And many people feel our great problem is we get stuck in the head. We're all focused on the head, thinking about God, which is good up to a point, but you've got to get beyond the mind. And the Taittiriya Upanishad has a beautiful phrase when it speaks of that before which the senses and the mind fall away. The mind itself falls away before the reality of God. As long as you're thinking about God, you will never know him. Only when your mind falls away and you open yourself to the reality do you discover him. Or as the beautiful medieval English treatise, The Cloud of Our Knowing says, he cannot be gotten by knowledge, he can only be gotten by love. To go beyond your thoughts, to surrender yourself to him. So that is it. When the five senses and the mind are still, and reason itself rests in silence. It's to bring the reason to silence. That is the path of meditation. Then begins the path supreme. Then is the path to the beyond, to God himself, you see. This calm steadiness of the senses is called yoga. That's one of the earliest reference we have to yoga. And then in a later Upanishad, the Svetasvatara, we have a more longer one, but the basic uh, statement is, is this. With upright body, head and neck, lead the mind and its powers into the heart. And the Om of Brahman will then be thy boat with which to cross the rivers of fear. It's a beautiful sense, you see. With upright body, head and mind. And they always say in yoga, that the one essential is to keep the body erect. You can be sitting on a chair, you can even sit on the floor across legs, but the head, the neck, and the spine should be upright, because they say it creates harmony, a rhythm, a balance. In fact, they say, you know, that you become the pillar of the universe. The whole universe is centered on a pillar, the skamba, it's called. And when you sit upright like that, you identify with the pillar of the universe, and the whole universe is in now in harmony. You're in harmony with the universe. So that upright position really is important. So with the upright body, head and neck, lead the mind and its powers into the heart. And uh, that is meditation, you see. Lead the mind into the heart. And the heart is the center of the person. It's that source which we are reflecting on, beyond the mind. And this is exactly what we have in the Hesychast Fathers. Now, in our Western tradition, the nearest we come to yoga is in Hesychasm, which, as you know, was the doctrine developed in the Greek church, mainly in the 14th century, St. Gregory Palamas, the great authority. But the whole of the Philokalia, which most people know through the uh, beautiful book, The Way of a Pilgrim, it's a beautiful story, I'm sure most of you know it, but it's worth repeating, this Russian peasant reads in the New Testament that we should pray always, pray without ceasing. And he goes around to the different monasteries asking how to pray without ceasing. And at last he meets a starets, an elder in one of the monasteries, and he teaches him the prayer of Jesus. 
He says, and repeat the words, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Repeat that a thousand times, then two thousand, then five thousand, then ten thousand. And so he went on, and that prayer went on night and day, and his whole being was transformed by the prayer. And most of us find that if you want to enter deeply into meditation, you need some mantra, you need some words. You see, if you're meditating in the ordinary way, you reflect on the Bible, the Gospels, and Christ, and your thoughts lead you on. But when you go beyond thoughts, then you begin to get distracted. Your mind goes in all directions. You need something to center you. And the mantra is a means of centering. I'm sure you know them, but there are two books, I think, of great importance in uh, Christian tradition now. One is Father John Maine, who died a few months ago, lived his meditation center in Montreal, wrote the talks on meditation, and he uses the mantra Maranatha, come Lord. It's found in the Apocalypse, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. And he taught people to repeat the mantra continually, make it the sort of base, and then through that you come to the stillness, to the awareness of God. The other is the centering prayer of Father Basil Pennington, which has been developed at Spencer Abbey, Massachusetts. And he teaches the same method, using the mantra rather more freely and advocating the longer form of the prayer of Jesus. But you can take any form, really. The name itself has this power. And you want to find a form which suits your own physical and psychological being. In India, some of us use Om Sri Yesu or Yesu Om. One of our brothers, Amur Das, who teaches yogic meditation, his mantra is Yesu Abba. Yesu as you breathe in, Abba Father as you breathe out. And you breathe the whole world, the whole creation, your enemies as well as your friends, everybody in Jesus, and then you surrender all to the Father. It's a beautiful mantra, Yesu Abba. But you can find whatever form suits, but nearly everybody finds that a mantra is the best way of opening to the transcendent, to the path supreme. The Greek fathers used to say, lead the mind from the head into the heart and keep it there. The thoughts from the head into the mind and keep them there. Don't let them go wandering from one thing to another. Bring them to that point of stillness, of oneness, and then realize God. And then the Om of Brahman will be thy boat which to cross the rivers of fear. And Om, you know, is the sacred syllable. It's a marvelous syllable. For the Hindu, it is, and it's part of the Buddhist also, it is the sound which comes forth from the silence. They say Brahman is sound and Brahman is silence. And the, the Om of sound comes forth from the silence. So the Om is where it's the last thing we can utter before we enter into the silence. So many people simply use the Om, bring them into that silence, into the stillness. And the Kartupanisha speaks marvelously of this Om. And I think it's important because Christians today are generally accepting it. All over India today, we use the Om as a sacred utterance. It's a little like Amen. It has no specific meaning. It is a, an affirmation, really, like Amen, saying yes to God. And every prayer begins with the Om and usually ends with the Om. And as I say, it's our pathway to silence. And this is what the Kartopanishad said. I will tell you the word that all the Vedas glorify, all self-sacrifice expresses, all sacred studies and holy life seek, that word is Om.
Matthew, all the Vedas glorify, self-sacrifice, expresses sacred studies and holy life. See, that word is old. That word is the everlasting Brahman. That word is the highest end. When that sacred word is known, all longings are fulfilled. It's the utterance which opens you to the unutterable, see, to the source. So that is the, the meaning of Om. And that carries you over the rivers of fear. And we're all living in rivers of fear. We're all afraid of a nuclear holocaust and all these tragedies which go on around us. And when we meditate, we need something to carry us beyond those rivers of fear. And the word, the Om or the mantra, the name of Jesus, is the word we use to carry us beyond those rivers of fear, open us to the peace which passes understanding, to the divine peace. So that is the, the mystery of the Om. Now that is the, the method, you see, of yoga. And I think another point which is important is this. In our Christian tradition, we have a rather negative attitude towards the body, towards nature as a whole, and towards sexuality in particular. And it started with the fathers of the desert. And as you know, they practice extreme asceticism, trying to subdue the body. And it all belongs to that rather dualistic attitude, which is found in the Semitic and in the Greek, but is not in the Indian tradition, whether Hindu or Buddhist. And so we've inherited a tradition of subduing the body, subduing the senses, and negating sex as far as possible. We must always remember balancing forces. In the conferences of Cassian, there's a wonderful discourse of St. Anthony, where they're all asking, what is the greatest virtue to bring you to the knowledge of God? And some say one thing, some say another, and St. Anthony says discretion is the one necessary virtue, because they all found people so easily go to extremes. So there was a balance of discretion. And then St. Benedict came, and discretion, you could say, was the principle of his rule. So he brought a balance into the whole Western tradition. And we've all lived from that. But nevertheless, we still have a rather negative attitude to the body, to the senses, and to sex. And I think that is one of the things which the Oriental tradition can free us from, because yoga has none of that. And yoga is never suppressing the body or the senses. It's always a control and an integration. You integrate your body, your senses, your sexuality, your whole personality into the supreme reality, the Atman, you see. It's integration. And that, I feel, is what we all have to learn from yoga. So yoga is this harmony uh, that it's sometimes translated. Yoga literally, as you know, means yoking, uniting, uniting the body and the soul so that the body and the soul awake to the presence of the spirit. That is the art of yoga. And so Yoga, then, is our practical discipline by means of which we open ourselves to the spirit and in the light of that spirit we can begin to theologize, to reflect on our faith and to express it in a new way. And now this is where I feel we monks and the monastic order has a very special calling because this kind of contemplative theology is in our tradition. You see, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, they started this scholastic theology, and that is their business. And obviously, of course, it has many um, other aspects. The Franciscans bring great love into it, some Bonaventure, and so on. 
But the specific monastic theology was a contemplative theology. And I think this is a particular calling of the monk and the nun of the monastic order today is to realize this monastic theology, this contemplative experience, you see. There are two or three aspects of that. The first is that a theology of this kind rises from a community. You don't do it simply on your own. And in fact, I didn't mention it, but in St. Paul, for instance, it's most interesting the way all his theology arise from a particular situation. He writes these letters to the Romans, Corinthians, the Galatians, and so on, answering certain problems facing the churches at that time. And in facing those problems, talking to those people, he brings out the whole of his theology. One of the best examples is in the second letter of Philippians, where he's telling his disciples there to be humble, to have that mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. And then he goes to the most wonderful theological exposition, who being in the form of God, thought it not a thing to be grasped at, to be equal to God, but emptied himself, and so on, you see. A whole theology arising from a human situation. And that, I think, is what we're realizing today, that all theology must arise from human experience, and normally a community. And that is, I think, the importance of this liberation theology. I don't agree with all of it, but I do feel that these basic communities in South America are models of what the church can gradually become, or at least one aspect of the church. And there you have people, lay people, coming together, reflecting on their lives in the light of the Bible and in the celebration of the Eucharist. And out of that, responding to their human situation, social, economic, political, the whole situation. And that is a living theology. So all theology must arise from a human experience. And that normally takes place in a community. And I would think our monastic communities could be cells, you see, in which this reflection on the gospel in the light of our human situation could take place. Now, the next thing is, of course, that these communities would be totally integrated in the culture of the people. Whether we're in Asia or in Africa or in South America or in North America, we have to integrate into the culture of the people. And we have to be one with our neighbors. And that is where the test comes, you see. As long as we're theorizing merely, we're not getting very far. Only when we begin to live with the people, share their life, their sufferings, their needs, and experience their way of relating to God and to nature and the world, only then a new creative theology will come. And I would feel that's exactly the call of the monastic order. In our meeting at, in Candy, 1980, the centenary of Benedict, the main theme was poverty, you know, because that was the great reality of Asia. And the whole orientation was towards small communities related to the world around them, to the culture of the people, and building up their life in that situation. And that is where a theology would evolve. When we live a community life in the context of a, of a culture, of Asia, of Africa, whatever, and when we begin then to reflect on that life in the light of the gospel and in the light of the scriptures of the other religions. That's, I think, very important that we begin to introduce reading of the scriptures of other religions. In our ashram, we always have a reading from the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Dhammapada of the Buddha, 
uh, we've been having the Quran also and many of the bhakti, the devotional poets. And we, you read it in the context of the Bible and your Christian experience. And then it comes to life in a new way, you see. So I think we all have to learn to meditate on the Bible and the other scriptures. Actually, it began, you know, with a very interesting group in India in 1965, I think it was. Bishop Tananda records it in his book, Hindu-Christian Meeting Point. And it was a group of Christians, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant. We used to meet together with Dr. Kuttar, who was a Swiss ambassador in Delhi, a man of deep spirituality, and he was one of the leaders in that group. And we would take a text from the Bible, meditate that together, then a text from the Upanishads and meditate that together, and then see the interrelationship. And that seems to be the, the way, you see, an Indian Christian theology would evolve. We must meditate, assimilate the experience of both. And so you would have a community living in the cultural context of the people around them and reflecting on the scriptures of the Bible uh, and the fathers and of the religion of the people around. And then that could lead on to a contemplative theology. As I say, we have our models, and I didn't mention it, but nearly all of the fathers developed their theology by commenting on the Bible. Almost all of them wrote commentaries on the different books of the Bible and developed their theology from that. And that seems to me the natural way to write a commentary on the Bible or on the Upanishads or the Gita and to relate one to the other, you see, through a commentary. That is certainly one way in which a monastic theology could eventually evolve. So all of that should lead to contemplative experience, you see, by living in that way, by sharing this with our neighbors in their cultural expression, by meditating on the scriptures, we are led to this contemplative experience, and then we are initiating that meeting of the different religions. And that we must always keep in mind. We're not trying to create a Christian church, a Christian theology separate from everybody else. That is no longer meaningful today. Any real theology must be related to the theology of other religions. It has to be an interfaith theology. And as we share with them, so we trust they share with us. And then that convergence takes place. All the different religions spring from a common source, are moving towards a common end, but they're all different. We've all developed these differences of language, culture. Every conceivable thing is different, and yet behind the differences is this profound unity. And we have to discover that hidden unity, and then we are open to people of other religions. They can come to our monasteries or our ashrams and we can go to theirs and gradually we discover this hidden unity. But as I said, it requires discernment. It's no good having a syncretism where you just mix things up. You've got to have clear understanding of your own faith or rather you've got to be living your own faith, you see, authentically. And when you're doing that, then you're able to assimilate what the other tradition has to say. And they have to do the same. The Buddhist, the Hindu, has to be an authentic Hindu and a Buddhist, but then he should be able to open himself to the Bible, to the Christian tradition, and assimilate what that has to say. And I think we would arrive at a convergence. Nobody can say what form it would take, but we would all be discovering one another 
and discovering how to relate to one another. I don't think the differences probably would ever go, and perhaps not desirable that they should, but within the differences we would be growing together always towards unity. So that is the vision I have of a contemplative theology and the place which the monastic order has in it. This concludes Father Griffith's second presentation. The third, The Personal God and the Absolute Godhead, is on the next cassette in numbered order.